What's up, OUXers? This episode is actually a replay from one of the last episodes of the UX Hustle podcast. That is my previous podcast that I just handed over to its new host, Amanda Worthington. So I got really great feedback on that episode, so I wanted to include it here in these first few OUX onboarding episodes of the OUX podcast. So this episode is actually an audio workshop that's going to teach you the basics of OUX and the ORCA process. So if you listen to the first episode, you should have sort of a big picture idea about what OUX is all about, how the process works. But in this episode, you're actually going to get to practice OUX. So you're going to get your hands dirty. So if you're driving or walking, please feel free to keep listening to about the first 25 minutes um, where I just give a bit of an overview of the process, reiterate some of those main principles. Uh, But once we get into the exercises, you're going to get so much more out of this if you sit down with a pen and paper. That's all you need is a pen and paper and play along. So if you did this with me while listening to the UX Hustle podcast episode back in, I think it was August, um, it's definitely not going to hurt to do this again, especially if you didn't feel like everything clicked into place. Sometimes just repeating it helps a whole, whole lot. Okay, so let's roll the intro tunes and then we'll just jump right into it. Welcome to the Object-Oriented UX Podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head-on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, facilitating cross-functional collaboration like a boss, iterating strategically and designing scalable, future-proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object-oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, user experience designer and chief evangelist for object-oriented UX. I've taught OUX to companies big and small and to thousands of individual designers like you, and I am honored to be your host. First, let's talk a little bit about what object-oriented UX actually is. So at the highest level, I explain OUX as part of the design process that focuses on the nouns. So the majority, if not all, of most design processes, traditional UX design processes, I'm using traditional in air quotes because we're still so new, nothing is really traditional, but most of the design processes out there that are being used at companies really focus on the verbs. What does a user need to do in the system? We think about use cases, we think about task flows, we think about user stories and all that is well and good, but we often skip over a super important step, which is what is the noun that the user is doing the thing to? What is the direct object? And I truly believe that although both are super, super important, we need to figure out the nouns, aka the objects, first. The verbs and all the things that users can potentially do to the objects should be firmly rooted in the objects. So this gets into direct manipulation. So when a user is doing something, they are very clear on what they are actually affecting, what they are doing it to. And this theory ladders back to a lot of psychology, cognitive science, how perception works, all these rabbit holes that I've been going down for the past five years and doing a lot of uh, research on. So in a nutshell, OUX is a philosophy for designing digital systems that respects the fact that people think in objects. 
And like I was saying, there's just a ton of super interesting psychology that backs that up. We're not going to get into that today. We're going to get into the doing as soon as possible. We're going to get into actually doing some exercises so you guys can practice this stuff. But I do have an article on Medium called The Object-Oriented User, and I will link that in the notes uh, if you want to learn more about the psychology. And I also wrote a more recent article called Don't Dead Him, which is all about why verbs are really hard for kids to learn, why nouns are much easier for kids to learn, even for kids that are growing up in um uh, learning languages that are very verb focused. So our our the English language is a noun focused uh, language. A lot of the Romance languages are, but um, some Asian languages are, and some uh, indigenous languages have this verb focus. And even then, kids are learning nouns. They're favoring learning nouns. So uh, it's very, I just totally geek out on this stuff. I think it's incredibly interesting. So go check that out on Medium. Uh, if you can just search Sophia VUX on Medium, I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. It's called Don't Dead and There's a Big Spider on it. So in summary, um, Verbs are relational. So that means that basically to understand a verb, you need some nouns surrounding the verb to hook your understanding on. So for example, eat out of context can mean a whole lot of things like, am I eating a cheesecake? Am I being eaten by a shark? Uh, But for example, shark doesn't really need a lot of verbs to communicate a pretty clear mental picture. I can say shark and it's going to pop a concept into your head. Um, I can say eat. And if I say that to five different people, five different people are going to come up with five different things in their head. And it's probably actually going to be an object that they're going to be thinking about what is being eaten um, is what's going to pop into the head. So we are very, very noun focused. Okay. So without getting into that psychology too, too much, if you can believe me that the building blocks of understanding are actually blocks, (laughs) you probably can agree, you can probably make the leap that for a human to understand an environment, whether that's digital or physical, those blocks need to be consistent and recognizable, right? So an environment where objects change shape arbitrarily, where objects that are different actually look the same, or were objects that are like really slippery and that you can't really grab a hold of that you're not really sure how to manipulate, this environment is going to be hard to navigate and hard to operate in. So us OUXers, which I hope everybody listening will become an OUXer if you're not already, we deliberately align our software to our user's real world mental model of concrete defined objects. Those are the real valuable things that they're coming for. So we make sure that those objects are recognizable, that they're familiar, that they're super easy to act upon. And this just leads to naturally intuitive websites and applications. So just a few more selling points on this, if you're not really convinced yet. So OUX, it doesn't just help you create these elegantly simple, like really strong boned uh, UXs, UXs, strong boned UX design. It actually makes you a more efficient, organized, and confident UXer. This was true for me. This has been true for everybody that's come through my programs. This is what they say. They say, I know where to start. I feel better that I'm asking the right questions to my stakeholders, to my uh, subject matter experts. It helps me wrangle complexity like a 
boss by strategically breaking down a problem. So one of my very favorite testimonials was a junior UX designer coming out of an eight-hour workshop, and she said, I feel like I can navigate any complexity, any level of complexity, like bring it on. Like she kind of felt excited to be thrown onto a really, really tough problem because she would know exactly where to start and how to break the problem down. Um, And then you'll also just like, you'll be better at asking the right questions. You'll be able to surgically extract this relevant intel from what whoever it is that you need to get that intel from, clients, subject matter experts, your users. And because Object Orient UX helps you ask these really, really good questions really early on in the project, it's actually a tool that's going to help you turn into a domain expert very, very quickly, which is great for if you're a consultant, um, if you're constantly getting tossed into new industries and you're sort of expected to start designing um, just as soon as you hit the ground running. This has been definitely my experience as a consultant. It's like, Overnight, I need to become an expert in electronic healthcare records or day trading or HR. Uh, this process has helped me. This is like giving me that superpower, which is always like very impressive for my clients that I can kind of get up to speed in their industry very, very quickly by using Object Orient UX to break down their um, their business models, really, um, their industry models, and to really understand how all these pieces are working together. Sounds pretty awesome, right? Y'all, this is seriously no joke. This is not a gimmick. (laughs) It's really not. Um, It has completely changed how I work, um, my success as a UX designer, and it's changing how hundreds, maybe thousands, let's say thousands, right? Let's just, let's just go on. Let's just go with that. Thousands is changing how thousands of UX designers and a ton of companies are working um, and more and more every day. So, okay, backing up again, um, I'm going to tone down the sales pitch. I get, I just get really excited about this stuff, guys. I just want you all to have it because it's been so helpful in my life, but let's back up a little bit and define objects. (laughs) Okay. So when I talk about objects, I'm not talking about your digital components. Okay, I'm not talking about headers or nav bars or droplets or buttons, all the little things in your design system. In object or in UX, the objects are those real world things of value that are valuable to the business, they're valuable to the user. The digital components, they represent or package these objects. Okay, they're means to an end. So all those UI components, those are means to an end. So when I When I say that, an example helps. I say this so much, but nobody is coming to your website for your calendar picker, okay? They're not coming to your website to click a button. They're not coming to your website to pull down a drop list or fiddle around with your nav bar. Like, that's not why they're there. They're there for the events. They're there for the people. They're there for the articles. They're there for the teams, I don't know what the thing with the objects are in your system, but they're there for those real world valuable things that are being represented in your system. Okay, so you understand the difference there? We got a calendar picker versus the event. Okay, nobody's coming to click your calendar picker. They're coming to understand about the event, maybe sign up, maybe RSVP, learn more about it, see who else is going. Okay, so for an example, let's think about objects for an app for the Humane Society. So um, 
pause the recording real quick if you want to, and um, just think of what might be some objects. I'm not. I don't. We don't even have a goal in mind yet. We're just thinking the Humane Society wants to create an app. Okay, what might the objects be? Pause and come back. Okay, so what I came up with is Humane Society locations. All right, um, pets, actual animals. Maybe adoption events. Maybe there is some sort of event um, type object, uh, like a big sale or something like that. I know I got my cats. Uh, when I got my cats, it was two per one that day for kittens. Um, my husband always says that Shari was the free one. Uh, okay, we got users. We have volunteer opportunities. I wrote down employees, pet care tips. So you might have had very different things, but Think of things like that, things that are actually people would come to um, to add value to their life, right? Th that they might want to do something to, like sign up to the volunteer opportunity, um, learn from the pet care tips, actually adopt an animal, okay? So think people, places, things, and content types. That's a really good kind of checklist when you're thinking about objects, okay? So the process that I teach, I call it ORCA. And that stands for objects, relationships, calls to actions, and calls to actions, calls to action, and attributes. Okay, I'll say that again. Objects, relationships, objects, relationships, calls to action, and attributes. And I like to say it's a process that has big teeth, okay? And it really, really does. Uh, it's going to take, oh my gosh, I could keep going. It'll take a bite out of complexity. All right. So we OUXers, we ask four questions before starting to design a single screen that aligns to those, what I call the four pillars of ORCA. So what are the objects in this system? What are the relationships between these objects? Okay. How do they sit in context of each other? What are the calls to action that these objects offer up to users? What are the affordances? What can users do to all of these objects? And what are the attributes for each object? Okay, what is the structure of each object? And we get really clear on that, really, really clear before we start designing screens. So we get so clear. So the, or the ORCA process is actually made up of four iterative iterative rounds. We've got discovery, requirements, prioritization, and then we get into sketching slash prototyping. Okay, so each round tackles these four questions at an increasing level of fidelity. So four rounds, four main pillars for each round. So do the math. How many steps is that? At 16. 16 sequential. Sequential? 16 sequential steps. So I sometimes joke that it's sort of like a meat grinder for problems. You put the problem in one end and you will get solution sausage on the other end. And the really cool thing about these 16 steps is that they're scalable. So it's awesome and amazing if you can spend two months on those 16 steps. I actually often do for a very complex project. Um, two months well spent. Um, you can also do this in two weeks. Okay, you can also run through these 16 steps in two hours. If it's just you and like maybe one other person, if it's just you and your notebook, you can run, what did I say? Two days, two days. So you can do, <laughs> you do this in two months is like for a big complex project. Two weeks is sort of more like, oh, we're going to do uh, an Orca sprint or something. 
shove it into your agile process in two weeks. That works too. If you want to do it really quick and dirty, two days. And if it's just you in a notebook working out maybe some like shower idea, two hours, three hours, an afternoon, you can go through all 16 of these steps. Okay, so it's scalable. And one of the things that people that have gone through my training say over and over again is that Orca gives me a place to start. So they say things like, I no longer get intimidated by the complexity when I start a new project. It's not like I just get, you know, dumped in and I have all of these things that I need to synthesize. I actually have a tool to synthesize all this information. So when you come into a project and you need to take a ton of stuff in, so maybe you got existing research, you got some vision decks from the CEO, you've got an existing system you might need to analyze, perhaps a requirements document that some like consultant from one of the big five consultancies wrote seven months ago and you need to like dust off a Word document, um, maybe three pages of handwritten notes from a kickoff meeting, or maybe, this has been my this has been my experience before, just being plopped into a base camp project or a confluence site. And it's like, explore, <laughs> familiarize yourself with this. And it's just this like, you're drinking from a fire hose of information or you have very little information to go on, right? So usually it's one or the other, right? It's there's the complete dump of of assets that you could and you just have no idea where to start, or like very, very slim, um, very sparse assets, and again, you don't know where to start. So you can actually start with noun foraging, which is step one. Okay, so before we dive into noun foraging, um, which we've actually already done a little bit for the Humane Society, but before we really get into noun foraging and talk about how that works, I just want to go over the four rounds of ORCA with you so you can kind of get a get a big picture of what this process looks like. So let's start with discovery. It's a good place to start because it's the first round. Uh, so this is when you're just starting to figure out what your objects are and how they relate to each other, what users can do to uh, do with them, what they're made of. And the real point of discovery is to uncover more questions than answers. So, but the good news is, is you're getting these questions that often don't reveal themselves until later in the process. If you're not using, if you're not using Orca, these are, these are questions that might come up when you're deep in wireframing, when you're in usability testing, uh, when you're doing your third subject matter expert review of your wireframes. And they're like, well, what about this? And you're like, oh my gosh, wish I had known that two months ago. Um, and when you are pulling up those questions, when you're basically like, it feels like time travel kind of, you're like grabbing questions from the future. Like, oh man, like we wouldn't have got to that until way later without this process. It's a really good feeling. Even if you don't have the answer yet, you're like, good thing we're thinking about that now and not after I have like, you know, 40 artboards and sketch or Figma or whatever it is you're using. And this helps you prevent rework right? Nobody likes rework. So we want to ask all those uh, questions early on. So I often say that the discovery round has a way of smoking out complexity really early. It just like (laughs) complexity can't hide from this process. So in the beginning, it just feels really messy. Like when you're cleaning out your closet and things sort of get worse before they get better. But getting to all that potential complexity early on is just going to save your butt later. And it's going to give you this laundry list of questions that you can bring back into research, which is another golden thing. So often we have, um, 
between discovery and requirements, there usually needs to be another round of going back to research um, because you go through the discovery and all the unknown unknowns become known. <laughs> so it's a really great way if you have problems making a case for research to sort of take a lot, whatever you have that, you know, what, like, oh, like, here's the Google Drive, like go through the Google Drive and then start wireframing. You can go through that Google, Google Drive, start doing your discovery, maybe run a collaborative workshop and show all these like really, really pointed questions that come out of that. Um, and it's really great to make a case for additional user interviews, um, for additional time with your subject matter experts, whatever it else, whatever else it is you need, even if it's just a survey that you send out to your users. Um, it really does help make the case for that because you find this list of questions that just you can um, really make a case to your managers that the, if these questions go unanswered or if we're operating on assumptions, it's going to be really dangerous and risky to move forward in the process. So I found that one of the things that people have trouble with when they want research is they don't already have their questions planned. So if you're having problems, so just as a side note, if you're having problems selling research, you need to make sure that you have really good questions, not questions like, what's your day in the life? What are your biggest challenges? Like those are good, really like broad early on questions, but that's not necessarily going to sell you research if you're having problems doing that. If you have very, very specific questions that you need to ask users um, about their business processes, uh, about how the industry works that you don't quite understand, um, you can make a much better case for doing research. Okay. Coming back from that rant, let's, let's get back to this. Okay. So maybe we go back to research. <clears throat> maybe we don't, but after discovery, we go into the requirements round. So during requirements, this is when you're really starting to understand the nature of your system of objects. So you define your objects like you actually write definitions in an object guide. And an object guide has lots of different parts, uh, purpose of the object, the definition of the object. You write a list of instances of the object. Um, so some examples of actual instances of that object. Um, and you basically create a very rich document that talks about these objects to make sure that just everybody on the team has the same picture in their head about what these objects are, which is golden for collaboration to make sure you're all using the same words in the same way. Um, you dig into the mechanics of the relationships between the objects. So really getting into the, like, how the cardinality works. Um, we're gonna get into cardinality a little bit later. You're gonna write proto user stories to start describe, to describe uh, functionality. You're gonna get into thinking about various permutations of each object. Like going back to our Humane Society example, an adoption event in the future versus in the past. So how does it change? So does a past event show celebratory data about the number of adoptions that happened at that event? Um, are there um, are there pictures that are featured of the event? That kind of thing. Like you wouldn't have that in the before state. You would only have that in the after state. So that's just a really simple example. But a lot of our objects do go through stages where attributes change. Okay, or they have different states based on who's looking at them. So we start getting into that during requirements. So now that we have a really good idea of what we're working with, like we're really intimate with our objects, the relationships, the calls to action, the attributes, we can be really, really informed as we cut, as we reorder, as we combine. 
So that's when we get into prioritization. So this is where we kill our darlings, as Stephen King would say. So we basically build a product roadmap um, by prioritizing our objects. So this is where our project managers get really excited, where our product managers get excited, um, where we really need to bring in the business. Um, and we definitely should bring our developers throughout this entire process. They are going to be they're going to be amazing collaborators as you go through Orca, but especially um, at this part of the process when they help you prioritize because they're going to know level of effort. Okay. So that's a big piece of prioritization. So not just from the business perspective, but like how hard is this going to build? Or is there just general order of operations? Like this needs to come before this because it's just going to make it easier from a build perspective. So you want to get your developers involved here. And this is where we're going to, um, we're not only going to prioritize our objects, but we're actually going to think about how our primary navigation is going to work by prioritizing relationships. Uh, we're going to decide how our users are going to access CTAs based on how frequently they're going to use them. So how far do they have to reach to, to grab that CTA? Is it just, is it really easy to access that CTA or do we need to put it behind some progressive disclosure? And um, we're going to prioritize the most important content and metadata for each object. So what should a user see on the object's card and what attributes can be one click away on its detail page? What attributes need to be up the page? What attributes can be scrolled down the page or again in some sort of progressive disclosure like an expandable, expandable panel or something like that? So we come up with this canonical prioritization structure for our objects to prevent that structure of objects arbitrarily shifting from page to page. Let me explain that a little bit better. So we're coming up with that, that prioritization. So when an object manifests on one page, and then when an object manifests on another page, that order doesn't change, which happens all the time. Okay, so I call these shapeshifters and they are the bane of my existence. I talk about shapeshifters a lot in my trainings. But so an, an example, let's say a card, we have a card representing a dog on our Humane Society app, okay? So we have a card that, re that represents a dog and it shows up on the home page. And we've got name, age, breed, gender, and then the photo, okay? And then you click into the detail page and now the photo is at the top and then you have name, gender, breed, location, age, and maybe actually age doesn't even show up. Age is only on the card, but it's not on the detail. Can't tell you how many times I see stuff like this. That's a shapeshifter. And maybe you have another card, which is... Um, it shows up not on the home page, but this is another card that shows up on the location detail page. So all the dogs at this location, and you might have yet another manifestation with another prioritization. And often these prioritizations are not strategic or intentional. That happens when we design page by page instead of object by object. Okay, so you end up changing the order of things um, completely arbitrarily for absolutely no reason at all. And this is bad for one, you, because you've just designed the thing three ways when you could have designed it one way, and then bad for your developers because now they have to develop it three times instead of just one time. And it's bad for your users too because now they have to learn where stuff is three times. You're constantly moving things around and it makes it more difficult to learn. It increases the cognitive load. So we really wanna avoid those shapeshifters. If you take anything away <laughs> from this time that we have together, Really try to keep your priorita prioritization of attributes consistent as you represent objects across different screens.
Okay. All right. Oh, and I actually, um, this is a very easy thing to do, by the way. Um, if you're not being really intentional about it, I actually found a shapeshifter on my own website, my very own website. I found a shapeshifter. Um, I made a little video about that, a, a self expose. Um, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. Okay. Finally, last phase during sketching, we sketch out our objects. Um, we do that by sketching out our object cards, our object detail pages, and then we also sketch list pages and landing pages. And once you string those things together, you basically have the bones of your prototype. You have the foundation. Your objects have all the right data in the right order. And users can navigate from object to object based on those relationships, what I call contextual navigation, which is the most intuitive way to navigate. So your buttons are all in the right place too. All your calls to actions, they're the right distance from the user. They're the right, they're the most commonly used ones are the most easy to access. The most less frequently used ones are a little bit farther away. Okay. So all you really have left to do, <laughs> which is actually kind of a lot, all you have left to do is to design the detailed interactions that unfold after someone triggers a CTA. So that's where the ORCA process passes the torch to interaction design, and there's a lot of other information about that. Now, doing this work is going to make the interaction design work much easier, but we don't get into that in ORCA, okay? We're all about figuring out what the objects are, how they all work in this kind of like foundational system to make that, that verb-based stuff, the interaction design, a lot easier for you to design um, and a lot easier for users to actually understand what they are supposed to do, what they can do, and how they can actually do those things. Okay, so now you have an idea about what object-oriented UX is and what ORCA is. So object-oriented UX is this kind of big picture philosophy about respecting the fact that people think in objects and aligning our system so that objects are really easy to find and understand. And ORCA is Sophia's, like, process for object or in UX. Okay. And you just went through those four rounds. So if all of this didn't completely make sense, if you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose right now, that's okay. I just dumped a lot on you. It's totally okay. Re-listen or, you know, consider spending more time with me. Um, we'll go into this in a lot more detail, um, a lot more methodically. I'll kind of hold your hand through it. Um, in the workshop on the 22nd and the 23rd. And of course, we have cohort three coming up uh, starting September 30th. So that that so cohort three is already half full, guys. Um, okay, so let's play with this a little bit now. All right, are y'all ready? Hopefully you have a really kind of a good idea on what this is all about. So get your pen and paper and we're gonna go through the first round of ORCA. We're just gonna go through the discovery round. All right, starting with the O of ORCA, let's find our objects. So I call this noun foraging. We are basically looking for those real world valuable nouns that we hear over and over and over again. So these are the, the nouns that we hear in user interviews and in conversations with the business during competitive analysis, during industry analysis, while we go through that base camp project. So for this exercise, we're just going to be working with a handful of quotes from our customers. Um, our customer is the Humane Society and our target users are potential pet adopters. So it will be helpful for you to download these research blurbs and print them off or just look at them. I'm going to read them, but um, this way you can actually kind of like jot, jot down some notes or circle the nouns that you think might be objects as you do your noun foraging. So there's a link to the Google Doc in the show notes. Um, 
so that you can um, you can look at it instead of just here. But otherwise, it's totally fine. You can just use that 15 second back button if you need to re-listen. Okay, so here's what the business says. We need to reach more adopters remotely. Surprise, surprise. We need to make it easier for them to see the furry friends that currently need adoption, get to know these animals, and ask questions about the animals without having to come in, as most of our facilities have had to close for visitations. We want to do virtual meetups so adopters can meet a pet first and then potentially commit to adopting. Okay, here's another quote. We really want to facilitate virtual adoption as much as possible. If an adopter can commit to the adoption virtually, then we can set up a safe drive-through pickup. We need adopters to make appointments for this to make sure that we don't have clusters of people. Basically, they could get maybe a 15-minute slot to come meet the pet in person with plenty of safe space and then bring him or her home if it's a good match. Okay, here is a quote from a potential adopter. I want to be able to see the animals at all locations in my area. I'd be willing to drive a few hours to pick up the right dog. Right now, I can't see dogs across multiple locations. Okay, from another potential adopter. I live alone and I want to adopt so bad, but the facilities are closed now. I'd love to be able to message the Humane Society with questions about a certain animal or maybe set an appointment to do something like a FaceTime with the animal. Okay, so you might need to listen to that again uh, if you have it printed out. What you want to do is you want to try to find the nouns that might need to be objects in the system. So look for synonyms to what's showing up over and over and over again and try to narrow it down to about six objects. So pause the podcast until you're ready to hear what I came up with. All right, so I listed pet. I hope we all had pet. Adopter, location, virtual appointment, pickup appointment, and message. Those were my six. Now, if yours are a little bit different, that's okay. This is an art and a science. So, um, for example, our virtual appointments and pickup appointments, are those the same thing or are those two different objects? So, like I said, there's definitely, there's an art and a science to this, and we could probably argue that one either way. The basic rule of thumb on this is to ask, do users think of them as different things? And for this one, the answer is probably yeah. So for now, let's just go ahead and keep those separate. Okay, now the next step of, of um, ORCA is R. So we've got the R of ORCA, relationships. And here's where we're just, we're going to start defining the relationships between these objects that we've defined. So why do we do this? This is one, because as we figure out how the objects sit in context of each other, it helps actually define the objects. So we really, this is a um, Richard Saul Warman quote. I'm gonna maybe butcher it a little bit, but we only understand things by understanding other things that are related to that thing, okay? So try to find, an, try to find a definition in the dictionary that does not include any nouns, <laughs> all right? You're gonna be hard pressed to do that. I've, I've actually, I've tried that. Um, okay, so, the other reason that we do this, the much more practical and kind of easy to grok reason that we do this is because the relationships are going to pave the way from our primary navigation, which is going to be our contextual navigation. So I'm on a location detail page. I can see all the animals at the location. I can click to that, that animal 
from that animal. I can see if I have any appointments with that animal or I can schedule an appointment with that animal. I can maybe even see other pets, right? So I can maybe see similar dogs to that pet, uh, maybe that are actually at different locations, okay? So I wanna be able to actually navigate through those real world relationships, which is the most intuitive way for a user to navigate. Basically, it's you have their mental model mapped out within the experience and they're just following the path of their existing mental model. Okay. All right. So on a fresh piece of paper, right, I want you to write pet, adopter, and location, sort of in a triangle. And you can circle or box in those words. And what we're going to do is we're going to draw arrows from one box to the other and label that arrow to define the has a relationship. So if you've ever built an entity relationship diagram or a content model, this should feel kind of familiar. So I call it a system model because it is a bird's eye view of the objects and the relationships in your system. So it's a model of your system. Um, and we're just going to do a really simple one together with just pet, adopter, and location. All right. So this has a relationship. This is where we describe cardinality. The definition of cardinality usually confuses people more than it helps. So I'm just going to jump in with some examples. And let's just use some examples using Instagram, which is hopefully familiar to all of you. So an Instagram post has one Instagrammer who posted it right? An Instagram post can't be posted by many Instagrammers. All right. So every, every post has one poster. Um, an Instagrammer has how many posts? Zero to many posts. Okay. You can be an Instagrammer and have not posted anything. Most Instagrammers have many posts. A post has zero to many comments, but a comment is always about one post and a comment has one Instagrammer author. Okay. So we're just creating these has one, has zero to one, has zero to many, has one to many. Okay. And if for, for right now, if it's easier, like just stick to has many or has one. Okay. So basically we're going to draw an arrow from one object to the other and label it to make a sentence about those object relationships. You may have, if you're more of a technical, you may have heard these be called triples for entity, relationship, entity, or subject, predicate, object. Anyway, let's do a few with our triangle of pet adopter and location. So a pet has one location and a location has many pets, right? Pet can only be at one location at a time. Maybe from an admin perspective, you might see past locations of the pet if the pet's moved around, okay? Um, but let's just keep it simple right now. A pet has one location and a location has many pets. Okay, what about pets and adopters? Adopters and locations? Eh? Okay, hit pause and try to model the rest of the relationships by yourself. And y'all, if you get confused with the arrows, just write it out in sentences. It's totally cool. So did you come up with a pet has zero to many adopters interested in her? Or a pet maybe has one final adopter. A pet has one adopter. Only one person can adopt that pet. Okay, so those are two actually pretty strong relationships. And we can go the other way too. And we always go the other way too. We do this, we do basically um, the inverse, okay? Which feels a little bit redundant, but it's really important. So the other way we go, an adopter has many pets or zero to many pets that she's interested in. And an adopter has zero to many pets that they've adopted. You can adopt more than one pet, of course. And again, yes, you're describing the same relationship from both sides and that is totally okay. 
So an adopter might have one too many locations that they adopt from. I think that makes sense. You probably, when you're creating an account, you need to select maybe at least one location, um, but you can select many locations depending on how far you want to drive. So a location has zero to many adopters. Mm, this is a weird one where the inverse of the relationship doesn't make that much sense, at least from an end user perspective, because you're never going to want to manifest that or show that to an end user, right? Like I wouldn't want to go to the location and like see other adopters that are adopting from this location. That would be weird. This isn't really a social app. Uh, but there is a relationship there, and it does make sense from a backend or manager, like an admin perspective, to be able to see all the users who have favorited that location or like added to their location. That would be amazing because in the future, like if there's an event that's happening at that location, we might want to message all the users that have that location set as one of their preferred locations. Make sense? Okay, so that location has zero to many adopters, might, there is still a connection there, but it might just be visible from an admin perspective. Okay, let's do one more set because these relationships are kind of, kind of dicey, kind of tough. So we have pets, adopters, and visual appointment. All right, so make, just get a fresh piece of paper, do another like triangle, pet, adopter, virtual appointment. And we don't really need to rethink the pet and adopter relationship. You've already done that one. So Make another triangle, pause the podcast, and see if you can connect the dots. Okay, here's what I came up with. A virtual meetup can include one-to-many pets, or did you say just one? Well, here's one of those questions that's great to figure out before we start sketching and wireframing. So logistically, for the employees, is it better to have one appointment per pet or allow a user to say they want to meet, say, up to three pets? in an appointment. Is there is there a limit? I mean, can you do five? Is two? Is it okay to do two? Uh, from a user, would it be super annoying to have to make three appointments for three animals? Or would that just make sense to the, would it make, would it be more simple for the end user? So we found a really good question to take back to the business and the user. So from a logistical perspective, like wrangling multiple animals for one meetup? Does that, for one virtual call, is that just gonna be too hard for them? No idea, or does that make their life easier? No idea. Um, And then the inverse, because we're always thinking about both angles of the relationship, a pet has zero to many virtual meetups. Okay, so zero is sad, but still, how cute is that? Like I'll have, each pet has a little calendar of their upcoming virtual dates. And we can dig a little deeper here and think about what this, relationship means if an adopter is looking at all the virtual meetups for a pet versus an employee looking at all the virtual meetups for the pet. So what does this look like from an adopter standpoint versus an employee standpoint? So from an adopter perspective, they're only going to see their appointments. And most pets are going to have zero virtual appointments scheduled. And a few lucky ones might have one or perhaps two. Wait a second. So here's another question. How many virtual appointments will an adopter be allowed to make with a pet? Only one at a time? Are we going to like allow a follow-up if needed before committing to the drive-through appointment? This is another question for the business. Like are are lonely people going to take advantage of endless appointments and just like, you know, every day want to have an appointment with this one dog and never adopt it? Okay. So from an employee perspective, an employee would need to see that the pet's whole calendar of events And the employee side of the app, well, each appointment will need to include an employee to facilitate that meeting because we don't really trust the dog to show up to their appointment without 
without, you know, an employee taking them to the appointment. Um, dogs, dogs are really bad about punctuality. So employees definitely need to be objects too, because they kind of need to get assigned, right, to these different, <laughs> these different appointments to make sure that somebody's there to like turn on the camera and open up the computer. Um, so we def- we definitely need to have a relationship with the employee in the virtual appointment. So you can just see how complex <laughs> this can get, how complex you just can't even hide from a relatively simple application like this. I mean, we're getting into like, what are the business processes? Because the business processes, we're going to have to create systems. We're going to have to create screens to support those business processes. Okay. So think about how difficult this would be, yet incredibly helpful if you're designing a B2B insurance software or an app for oncologists to manage their patients' treatment schedules. Okay, this is an app to adopt pets, and we're already getting into some complexity here that we just have to tackle. This isn't complexity that like, oh, you're making it more complex than it needs to be. Like, these are just questions that we need to be asking, and they're going to come up, you know, at one point or the other, maybe even after we launch, like, oh, crap, we well, well, it's okay, because we'll just iterate on it. No, guys, we don't want to have iterations if we can avoid them, right? We want to, we want to get as much right possible, especially our information architecture, because it is expensive to move around information architecture, UI, not so much. But when we're trying to move the bones around of our system, that gets really expensive. So we do want to try to get it as much right as possible in the beginning by asking these tough questions and doing this really tough work of modeling. Okay, so if you want to try and make a model with all six objects, seven if you include employees, feel free to post your system model, uh, make make it legible, post it on Twitter, tag me at SophiaVUX and I'll take a look. I'm uh, happy to give you feedback. Okay, let's move on to the sea of Orca. Calls to action, the invitations or affordances objects offer up for user action. So here's where we start brainstorming what users can do to all the objects. Sometimes this is the most fun part for people. So thinking about functionality, object by object, it actually prevents us from missing important features. So we're basically being super methodical about creating an inventory of interaction. And we'll explore each object so thoroughly that we will be less likely to miss something than if we're just thinking like, what does someone need to do on this website or within this app? So all tasks, like I've said before, all tasks are done to something. There's always that direct object. So follow, you're following a person. Buying, you're buying a product. RSVPing, you're RSVPing to an event right? Okay. So let's do one together. Let's do virtual appointments. So what might you do? What might a user do to a virtual appointment? Um, Well, it depends on who the user is, right? Is it an employee or is it a adopter? So first, this is where we really, we've done this a little bit already, but here we make sure to really define our user roles. Um, For this simple app, let's just keep it to adopters and employees. Often you might have eight different user roles if you have different permissions. So OUX, if you have some uh, real complexity with permissions, this process is amazing to help untangle that stuff, which we're not going to get into complex permissions right now. So let's just say we got adopters and we got employees. So adopters might book a virtual appointment with an animal or many animals. Haven't figured that out yet. Uh, Adopters might also need to cancel an appointment. Um, They might want to move an appointment. Um, If we think about canceling too, 
some more questions we might want to log is like, are there are there consequences to canceling? So should a virtual appointment require maybe a $5 hold? And if you cancel last minute or miss the appointment, then it becomes a donation directly to that dog. And maybe if you actually adopt the pet, that $5 goes toward the adoption fee. So see the level of thinking that can come out of just this one exercise. All right. What about, we have, we talked about move, um, move or re- request a new time if we need to change it. Um, so finally, we also have join the virtual appointment, leave the virtual appointment. You might be able to review the virtual appointments and like send some feedback or more questions. Okay, so brainstorm CTAs for pet and location and make a list of CTAs for each. So pause the podcast until you're ready to hear what I came up with. Okay, for pet, I had favorite, unfavorite, ask a question about, request virtual appointment for, and donate directly to. So favorite and unfavorite and ask a question, those are pretty straightforward. But what about the request virtual appointment or or book virtual appointment? Didn't we already cover that one when we were doing the CTA for the virtual appointment? Yes, we did. And there will be a redundancy where two CTAs attached to two different objects are actually going to lead to the same functionality. And as a user, I want this. If I am looking at my list of virtual appointments, I'd expect to see a book new appointment CTA and from there be able to add the animal or animals, depending on that business rule that we need to go back to the business and ask about. And if I'm on the animal detail page, I'd also want to see a button to book a virtual appointment. So, so much UX frustration, guys, comes from CTAs only being in one place and not on all the associated objects. So I'll give you actually an example that I deal with a lot. So I use HubSpot for my emails and I can navigate to emails, create an email and add a list of people to that email. So as far as um, objects, we have a list list and we have an email. Okay, so I can go to email and add and then say, okay, here's the list that I want to send this email to. But if I'm over on lists, looking at a list or configuring a list, I can't create a new email from there. All right, which I've wanted so many times. I have to go back over like two or three clicks. I have to go back over to emails, um, then send the email to the list. So the, the functionality is sending an email to a list, but I only have that entry point, that call to action in one place. All right, let's talk about donate directly to. So this is another like kind of the beauty of the process. It actually helps us be super creative and innovative about finding new functionality. So this is something if we weren't thinking about our calls to action object by object, we might not have even thought of that. So we would just think of we're just going to donate to the organization, right? So perhaps this is not a V1 feature, but this can be an amazing avenue for new donations. So especially after doing a virtual meet with an animal that you decide not to adopt, how many people would donate five or 10 bucks to that dog if there were just like after the meeting, there was a big button to offer that ability? Yeah, people would feel guilty. They'd be like, oh, that's a cute dog, but I don't think it's right for me. Like, yeah, I'll give them $10 though. Um, what about location, guys? So I had add to my locations and remove from my locations. I also had donate to and get directions to, but that's about it. Um, I did do some thinking on what it means to add to my locations. What does that call to action actually mean? So this means that when you're searching animals, you'll see animals across all those locations. So I could add like the six closest locations to me. Um, but then when I search animals, it's going to pull from all those locations. That was a requirement we got from one of our users. So 
I could narrow down to like kittens orange with six thumbs or something, six thumbs, six fingers, um, and see a couple dozen cute little cute uh, kittens if I'm, you know, if I've expanded my search far enough. So that's what it means to add to your location. You're adding to basically widen or narrow your search. So this needs to be really clear to the user because this isn't how other add my location or favorite location usually works. So like in Instacart, I have lots of grocery stores, but I'm only shopping. I'm only ever shopping one at a time. So we need to make sure that it's really clear about what this means in our Humane Society app. So a real world example of this. So in the OUX certification program, we communicate um, in the, in the uh, OUX forum, which we use the Mighty Networks platform for. for. And uh, we're building a really vibrant little community there. And one of our favorite things to do is complain about Mighty Networks. So it's not that bad. It's actually, it's really beautifully designed from a visual perspective, but it definitely has some OUX issues that have become even more glaring as everyone is going through the course. Um, so anyway, we recently discovered that profiles have follow buttons. And I saw it on other members, but as the host, I actually didn't know if I had a follow button too. So I messaged um, someone that was that was active in the forum. Uh, so Lucy Cates responded, hi, Lucy, if you're listening. And I asked her, I said, will you go to my profile and see if I have a follow button? Like, I didn't know, like, do people, am I automatically... Like, does everybody follow me automatically because I'm the host? And she said, yeah, you do. But I'm not sure what following means, though. It's a direct quote. So as UX designers, we often take for granted that our users can read our minds. Like, what does it mean to follow? Like, will I get emails? Will I get notifications? I have no idea. So we need to watch out for this. So for every CTA, we need to ask ourselves, will it be clear to the user what this means? Like when they click it, what the result will be? Will they be surprised by the result? Because if they don't know what it means, they probably won't click it. So we don't do a lot of following in Mighty Networks because we don't really know what that means. <laughs> um, and, you know, we know what it means in Twitter. Um, we know what it means. I actually don't really know what it means in Facebook, the difference between friending and following. So we just need to consider these things. Okay, moving on. Last pillar of Orca, A for attributes. So this is where we start listing all the core content and metadata that makes up each of our objects. So core content are attributes like name, image, description, unique IDs. It's like the real meat of the object. While metadata, on the other hand, is structured data about the object that helps users sort and filter through a list of objects. So if you think about all those toggles and checkboxes on the left side of Amazon that helps you uh, sort and narrow down your search results so you can find just the right two-inch blue sandal, that's metadata. Okay, so let's think about the, a Humane Society location. So what core content attributes might we need? So we will need the name, like there's the Howell Mill, there's the Duluth location, um, perhaps an image of the outside, a phone number, an email address. Um, what about metadata? Well, we're going to need location coordinates. That's going to be important. Um, and if we have location on our user as metadata as well, we can provide like a distance from you metadata. What about like open or close status? Um, okay, let's do it. Let's do a more interesting one. How about pet? So pause the podcast and come up with your list of attributes for pet. So don't worry so much whether your attributes are core content or metadata. This can be a little bit tricky. It can take some practice and there's really good reasons to differentiate the two later on in the process. But for right now, just create a list of attributes you might find on a pet. 
Okay, here's what I came up with. So for content, I have name, description, probably need some sort of ID number, and photos. And for metadata, I have age, breed, size, gender, whether they're neutered or not, um, the number of likes or favorites. And a lot of this stuff is um, coming from actually looking at thehumanesociety.com, right? So I don't know if anybody pulled that up to do a little bit of research there, but I'm not pulling these things out of thin air. So new ones like number of likes or favorites, that might be new because I'm looking at, oh, if I have a favorite call to action, I'm probably going to need number of favorites or likes. Um, We also have location of the pet, right? So which location are they at? How far away are they? But our location is also an object. So this is what I call a nested object, an object that shows up within the context of another object based on those relationships that we mapped out in the system model. So defining your nested objects, it helps you bake in that contextual navigation. So if I'm on the dog page, I see a card for the location that that dog happens to be at, and I can click on that location and I can get the details for that location. So I actually have very easy one-click navigation from um, Spike to the uh, the Duluth location, okay? So... All of these lists of attributes and the nested objects um, becomes what I call an object map. And the object map becomes the basis for your sketches and for your prototypes. Okay, guys, so there's your whirlwind tour of the first round of the ORCA process. So you've defined the most important things that need to be represented, and you started out mapping out, you started mapping out their relationships, which is going to inform that navigation. You have that initial brain stump of functionality. Did I say brain stump? Brain dump of functionality by thinking about the CTAs each object offers up to a user. And you've gotten a really good start at the structure of each object, which will be that material for your very intentional screen designs. If you want to know more about OUX, please sign up for the OUX newsletter. You can go to rewiredux.com slash newsletter. Of course, the link is in the show notes. And then you'll get all the inside scoops about upcoming trainings. Also, cohort four is going to be coming up at the beginning of 2021. That's um, the next cohort for the Object or UX certification course. Also, please join us on Meetup at meetup.com slash object-oriented-ux. We've got an OUX happy hour that meets about once a month. We're not meeting this month because this month is my birthday month, so I'm taking it off. Um, but our next meetup, which is not announced yet, it's going to be sometime in November, is going to be all about OUXing your UX portfolio. And we have a very special guest for that. So if you're wanting to revamp your portfolio, you definitely don't want to miss out on this event. And all the awesome community that we're building over there. Okay, y'all, happy OUXing, and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectorientux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing.